Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Band of History. Today we are sitting down with writer, columnist, and author Jude Warren to discuss her recent essay on the band's 1970 studio album, Stage Fright, which is part of a larger scholarly study of the band entitled Rags and Bones, an exploration of the band published by the University Press of Mississippi. Uh, this discussion was really fun. This is the first time uh, I had met Jude, and uh, we hit it off right from the beginning, and we discuss the band, stage fright, and music as a whole. So enjoy. I always like to start with this question, no matter who I'm talking to, because the story is different for everybody. But do you remember that first moment or that first interaction with the band's music? It's probably, it must be um, my parents because they are huge rock and roll people. And I grew up with them, obviously, and just exposed constantly to different records playing all the time. But they were huge band fans and definitely the band catalog, particularly the early, the first three albums, um, they played all the time. So I kind of grew up with that sound. And then we went to um, Woodstock, New York for a family vacation. I think they had been before, but I remember being four or five and going up with them and just hearing about all the lore that they knew of and remembered, just the excitement connecting the music of the band with the place. Um, and so I had that kind of understanding of it in the light way as a kid. Um, but then as I got older and got more into music writing, I explored the albums more thoroughly um, and really made a deeper connection with it myself personally. Um, but it was definitely an early, I had an early awareness of of their music. Interesting. You know, that's, that's, that's awesome, especially parents who are introducing you know, their children to, uh, to music like this. And you, you, you were, you were four, right? When you went to Woodstock, is that what you said? Four or five? Um, yes. For the, for the first time. Yeah. Did you, maybe this is a silly question because you were pretty young, but like when I went to Woodstock for the first time, it just, the air felt different. It, <laughs> it felt like a different space. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it's a small town artist community. There are plenty others not like it but others that have a similar function but it just felt that kind of going into the Catskill Mountains and kind of going into Woodstock proper and walking down the street and seeing the people there it just felt a little different it definitely does there's a magic in the air and just the the awareness of of the history that that is there and the 
some of the beautiful art that has been created in and around the area too. But it definitely feels there's an extra degree of freedom or something. Um, I mean, that's, I know we project things ourselves onto it, but but there there's something there for sure too. Underneath. Now, music writing and, and, and just writing in general, obviously something that I deeply admire, I consume. Um, and today in 2022, almost into 2023, like the, the music landscape's a lot different. There's plenty of great music, uh, modern rock music, um, indie, et cetera, Americana, if we're talking about the band or Roots. And you write about that too, but you know, you've kind of built a career um, talking to folks and writing about folks like the band, like America, the band, uh, and et cetera. How, how, how did you kind of get into that side of your writing in your career and and how do you kind of how do you kind of deal with uh how you approach things and the projects you're working on because i must imagine is it difficult to write and get people interested in writing about older acts like to me i i, I read it i love reading about uh groups uh that a lot of them still exist some of them don't um is it difficult to do people want you to write about new and modern acts? Do you strike a balance and, and how does that work? That's a great question. Um, I think, well, from how I approach it is even when I'm writing about newer people, when I get to do that or when I choose to do that, um, from my perspective, I'm always also writing about older music at the same time. Like it always comes into the conversation. Um, and I think it does, obviously, for the artists themselves, too, having been informed by music from the past and it goes into their music, whether, you know, you can detect that or see that immediately or whether just the awareness or knowledge of it is in the background somewhere. Um, so I feel like I'm always writing about the past one way in one way or another. I personally identify more with the, from to a degree, to, I mean, identify with the aesthetics of the music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which is now we call classic rock mainly, um, or, you know, classic pop rock music. Um, I think the qualities of the content in the music and the philosophy that's in there, um, for example, if you go into the 70s, California niche, like America could be considered part of, um, in my opinion, there's so much positivity in there and a lot of the residue of the love piece, rock and roll um, ideology that got more prominent or that became um, more known in the 60s, it was the thing, um, especially by the late 60s by Woodstock and stuff, the festival. Um, they were kind of, some of the California bands were carrying forward that message and in a, in a lighter degree, because a lot of the politics had been removed from it by choice or just by what happened in society. Um, so I love that stuff because it's very pure to me and I think it can be carried along to the future and into today more easily because there's less stuff, timely stuff, politics stuff attached to it. Um, so I love that. And that's why I, got, I like writing with that kind of music um, and that era, the seventies in general, I love uh, the movies that came out and and a lot of the um, literature that came out then, yeah. I love that decade. For sure. And and there's tons of parallels to draw to today, especially when you're talking about 60s mm -hmm. music and late mid to late 60s political climate, as you kind of alluded to, and, and certainly today what you see in the political climate, like it feels like the world and everything is quite cyclical and, and some of the things that we struggle with or succeed at mm -hmm. kind of con continuously we come back to. Yeah. So it's... It's interesting drawing parallels or taking 
a modern approach to something that, you know, um, is 40, 50, 60 years old in some cases. Right. So, um, that's the band for me, right there. When we're talking about the band, it's something that feels even probably for the period. And I want to know your opinion on this, just in their sound before we get into you writing about them, even for a group that was producing material at the tail end of the sixties and into the seventies originally, it felt like it transported you back even further in time to maybe like a civil war era, you know, uh, period. Mm -hmm. But then you still listen to it today. And a lot of it, um, especially the first records, I'd say first few records feel quite timeless even now, um, which is very interesting to me. Um, when talking and like listening to the band, what is it about their music that has, you know, folks, in your opinion, kind of coming back to it and writing about it still? That is a great point that you mentioned how their music in particular had their own niche that they, that Robbie Robertson with so much of the writing he did and that the music that the whole band created its own little area that stood outside of time and place too. And that's why in part, I think, you know, some of their songs that are told about history, historical narrative, like the night they drove old Dixie down, um, that creates such a strong sense of place and time that is not nowadays or not when the music was actually written. Um, they are extremely unique for that, in part for that reason. Um, and I think, yes, when you remove the, the politics of the day from something, from a work at the time, it does age better um, in some ways because it's already a historical or, or attempting to be a historical kind of story or sound. Um, and that weathers better, which is part of why I love their, their music. Yeah, no, I, I hadn't thought about it particularly like that before, but that makes a lot of sense. But let's talk about getting involved in writing your piece on, on Stage Fright for, um, like I was telling you just before we, we hopped on recording here, Rags and Bones, uh, it is wonderful, a collection of essays, the first scholarly piece of its kind, an exploration of the band. You're one of the featured SAS authors, writers, whatever the correct contributors, whatever the correct uh, terminology is, and uh, you are writing on stage fright. How did you get involved in writing this piece? Were you, were you asked, uh, I'm assuming? Um, how did it come to be? Well, it's an interesting story. I actually came to it through my friend George Pleskides, who is another of the essayists in this book. He wrote a chapter, and he brought the project to my attention and mentioned that he was working on it, and then that's how that got started for me, um, that's how I ended up contributing something as well. Um, but I met him through, I reviewed his book. He wrote a wonderful book on Warren Zevon and Warren's music that came out a few years ago. And I reviewed it um, for, I had a music column at the time in Red Paint Hill Literary Journal. And I was writing about Warren that issue. And so I talked about his wonderful book and then we kind of struck up a friendship after that. Um, but that was how I came to it. And I too, like you were alluding to, um, thought it was such a great idea and kind of overdue. Um, I mean, definitely overdue, you know. Um, I like the idea of looking at rock and roll music through and theoretically academic lens, um, you know, scholarly approach. That's what these essays mainly are. Mine is. Um, and like Brown Marcus, who's my favorite music writer, I think of all time. Um, he wrote very in depth about them and Bob Dylan, um, 
in the Invisible Republic book about the basement tapes, but in his, his earlier book, Mystery Train, he writes a lot about the characters that come up in the band's catalog. Um, and I just always love that some of my favorite music writing ever. And I, I kind of, when this project came up, I got excited that I could do my version of that in a way, you know, um, get to delve into their characters and their songs and stuff. And that's how I, how I approached it. Now, at least in the digital version I have, it's it's 19 pages. Now, obviously, I don't know. You might you might have been set out with, I guess, some instructions about what they were looking for uh, when when putting together something like this. <laughs> but how did you approach, you know, research for this? I research for the podcast. My target audience and how I do it is different than how you would probably approach this. I'm more of a generalist. I'm trying to get people interested and, and maybe not necessarily go as deep as, as, as you do in, into each individual song. To me, that's, it's, it's daunting. It's fun. It's an interesting challenge, but definitely daunting in my opinion. How did you approach like digging into the research for this? And, and other stuff has been written about it too. So I guess trying to find your own interesting way to kind of come into this is a part of that as well um it's it's interesting i i give a lot of credit to um the editors kevin niece and jeff sellers whose idea this was project it was and they edited everything and they guided the whole book for all of us um they were wonderful and made me feel like and i assume the other writers too we had a lot of freedom as to what our essays would be and, and where we took the ideas in them and stuff um, personally, as a writer, I like to focus very narrowly on one thing. So I, I love getting to analyze like one album or one band's catalog and narrowing it down. It's like my dream situation. My mind feels calm approaching that. And I do like to get deep, like you said, um, really get in there with mainly my opinions as to what the songs are about. But I like to focus on what the characters in the songs are, are doing, kind of like treating them like literary characters like you would. Um, and so they have this whole backstory maybe, or, you know, and, and especially this kind of music, Robbie Robertson and the band's writing, and it's so rich and, and beautiful colors going on there. And very, um, um, a lot of recognizable, yet beautifully nuanced archetypes presented, like the characters in Daniel and the Sacred Harp and um, just these very relatable, character narratives that are going on so i loved getting to analyze that and my inner english student loves loves doing that kind of thing you you'll see that if you check out my america book a lot of the album chapters are very similar <laughs> they're very in-depth go all in on just the album even apart from the artists themselves in a way um you know not treating it in that personal um manner but just as this kind of standalone work interesting so you chose to write on stage fright they they didn't give you any like hey would you do this would you write about stage fright for us you you pick stage fright exactly you know obviously a lot of people i think that's great i think that's awesome because i think a lot of people if they were asked and they had kind of like the opportunity to pitch anything they might try to go for the first two albums which <laughs> between us band fans that can be a little predictable also daunting though because like again uh, a lot of a lot of written on that stage right i think over the years has definitely aged better in in the minds of many people maybe more so than it did when it originally came out not that it was panned by any means but um 
and you approach this in your essay, it's just like after two wonderful albums that are critically lauded, um, commercially viable, um, you know, can you hit every single time? And even if it's a great album, which it is, it's kind of once you reach the top of the mountain, like, is there much more you can do to go higher? Right. Um, was that one of the reasons why stage fright appealed to you in that way, that it might've been an album that you deemed let's, we can extract more from this. It's, it's maybe even better and more worthy of a conversation than say music from big pink or the Brown album. Yes. You're absolutely right. And that's how I felt about those two albums are so sacred and special to, to so many people, myself included. Um, and the band is, as you know, themselves, it's in their catalog um, as, you know, defining who they were going to be. And, and so many gems of songs are on those first two records. And, and the sound on music from Big Pink is so out there and wild. Imagine hearing it for the first time in the 60s when a lot of other stuff was going on musically, beautiful things, um, but that sounded like its own uh, sonic world, which is so neat. And in part, like what we were talking about before, how it weathers maybe better than other um, more, you know, psychedelic records and stuff of the time did. Um, but I, my favorite story, and in a way it's, the, it's, the, it's every story, but the story of Innocence to Experience, which you can see it in so many places, like in the movie Citizen Kane, you know, that's what, the, <laughs> that's, what that's about, in a, you know, in a simple way of looking at that. Um, and mm -hmm. I think Stage Fright is also about that same idea. Um, and it also self-reflects on the band's own story that they were going through at the time and that what they had lived up until then, um, having met their own success, staring at them in the face and um, having reached that by the, you know, especially by that third album, but just um, looking at success as having experienced it already and then reflecting on perhaps how to, you know, sustain it or what to do next kind of thing. This, this a bit of a paralysis in stage fright, another term for it. Um, but I think it's so fascinating because most people arguably don't get to reach that point. It's a unique perspective from that particular mountaintop. And um, therefore the art that's created from that perspective is very valuable or, or extra valuable in some way, I think. Um, so I, I, I was very drawn to, to getting to analyze songs that you know circulate around that philosophical idea and the experience they had um, they had been living the band members themselves certainly you say early on in your essay and I I just remember this I remember the whole thing but this one this one sentence or these two sentences here were really interesting to me you said quote the records required an intellectual attention and sophisticated listening they held weight uniqueness and value and carry the band to the top wave of the musical ocean. You know, that's interesting to me because that kind of ties into this conversation. Uh, you know, maybe even after stage, right, you can include that in there and we can, this is maybe simplifying it a little bit too much because you can talk about other albums that they did that I think are, are, you know, full of merit as well. But was that their ultimate downfall? Not saying that the audience were dumb, rather the, the opposite. Was it hard to have a consistent output like yearly because you have contractual obligations and you're trying to produce music? when handling such weighty music and topics and characters, that intellectual attention and sophisticated listening that you're talking about, that's hard to achieve 
over time. And, you know, I don't think the band are unique in that way of like having that problem and consistently succeeding. I, you could maybe name a few other bands that I, I, that could, you could name that have a consistent catalog of critically lauded, always successful music, but that is a very slim list, right? Is, is that part of this too, that, that they just struck gold and it required a lot of attention and listening to, to kind of be successful? I think it probably is a little bit of everything. Um, but that's that I do talk a lot about that too, that, um, as you said, the, what you're confront, confronted with when you reach success, um, other than the, or in addition to your own self-reflection that you're going through, um, there are, there's more available to you, particularly in the seventies, early seventies, late sixties. Um, and, you know, just having more drugs at your disposal and that being very much a part of the culture, I believe, you know, regularly at that time. Um, and the more success you have, you can potentially believe that you have more rights or, you know, you can do whatever you want kind of thing. There's more of an, um, an essence of that energy. I think the more success you achieve or the, the moments of success that you feel, there's more right you, you feel to enjoying, you know, physical pleasures and stuff. Um, that perhaps you're above or beyond the average person, even if you're not consciously thinking that, but that idea is is weaved in there. And, and the the people who are around you, the more successful you get, theoretically, you know, um, feed into that and, and supply, supply it, I, I imagine. Um, so you're dealing with that. And that's another pinnacle that so many, you know, average people don't get to, don't have to deal with, don't reach that point. Um, but that also makes you reflect more upon yourself and consider your values, I think, um, you know, at some point, whether, you know, what kind of person do you want to continue to be within the realm of success that you have already achieved um, and how much you want to change. Um, I think in a way it's almost easier to not, to not achieve success or, or, I mean, we're talking about one kind of success, artistic success. Um, but if something's always over here, you know, you can kind of use it as, as this fun dream place that you can, you know, use as a happy place in your mind and, and, and it has full uh, freedom around it in terms of how it could happen, when, why, with who. Um, but as soon as it does happen, it's kind of this now what, what next feeling. Um, and of course that informs, can inform your art and inform the art on the on this album, Stage Break. It's interesting too, because as you're mentioning, it's it's something that most people never get to feel in their lives. Is that yeah. inherently a bad thing from from the perspective of oftentimes people you you become successful because of the audience, and the audience likes you because. Yes they can see themselves in the music or you're telling stories or relaying ideas, themes that connect a la the easiest mm -hmm. example of this maybe is Bruce Springsteen with the whole like blue collar middle America thing that made him successful. Yeah, when you reach a pinnacle of success where now you are kind of practically above everybody else and, and, and the way in which you live your life and the experience that you have aren't relatable is it then hard to continue to make music? And is stage fright kind of like a perfect example of that where, you know, people enjoyed it, but maybe it didn't connect as well as the previous records did because Robbie, the rest of the guys 
we're in a different space that many people don't inhabit. Yeah, I totally would. I do agree. Um, yes, it's a very unique perspective. However, I think it's just a testament to, to how incredible R Robbie is as a songwriter and the other band members, of course. Um, but he wrote a majority of songs on this particular album, especially um, just that he was able to shift his perspective to, to that more, um, um, you know, fragile point of view. I think a lot of artists don't choose, even if they may maybe feel, get to that level of success and feel these different emotions and, and ideas that are on this record, they don't necessarily articulate them, maybe in part, like you're saying, to stay more in touch with their audience, um, to stay on their level, or at least give them arts that, you know, reflects what they imagine um, the audience would relate to more. Um, so this is a very, it's very admirable that Robbie and the band took it in this direction on, on this particular album. Um, but it's true, I think certain levels of success create more of a bubble around the artist um, and theoretically can create more isolation. Also the isolation that's, um, you know, drugs and, and abusive substances feed right into that beautifully <laughs> where they can um, keep that isolation going um, with separation between the self and, and the world. Um, and I think too, the pressures are greater, as we know, you know, the more successful you get and perhaps in the band's case, the more fame, notoriety they achieved, um, they could feel the pressure perhaps on themselves um, as to what art they should be producing or what success they should achieve next, but just personal pressure too. And that can lead you to, you know, look for comfort and, and physical pleasures elsewhere um and some of the songs on this album deal with that you know strawberry wine is this beautiful kind of literal telling of that um but it's also a metaphor too for whatever pleasure you you seek and um how it's addictive <laughs> that's a that's a good one too strawberry wine is, is very much like you're saying it's it's upon first listen it's easier to kind of figure out what's going on maybe that has to do with with Levon co-writing it with Robbie too. Levon was a, definitely not one to mince words. I don't think he he waxed poetic lyricism that much, right? Um, but before before we get into some of that too, I I just want to the the topic of this innocence, the shattering of innocence, this isolation, this fame. I always thought it was interesting too, and. And and people sometimes are puzzled, not just by the band, but others. Like, how could how could the downfall happen? How could you get into this space? And I always think back, and when you try when you chart and track the story of the band, it, it does make a lot of sense. You know, you have a majority of the members in this group come from you know quite impoverished communities, in some case marginalized, um, with Robertson being. Uh, Jewish and indigenous, uh, growing up in Cabbage Town, which is now quite affluent, but uh, any local Torontonians would uh, would think it's uh, an affluent area. But it was once pretty slummy. Um, you know, Levon, sharecropper family, Rick, tobacco farming. You know, and a lack of education going on the road with Ronnie Hawkins and then Bob Dylan. Uh, I think people fail to realize, like, there's, there is, I guess, some truth to the fact that it's like, well, why are they surprised by this fame? They were around it. They were around success regionally with Ronnie Hawkins. They really got a taste of success and infamy and all the things that come with it when they were with Bob. Um, you think they maybe would have understood it a little bit better um, being like a decade into their careers at this point. 
do you think there's any part of that? Uh, you know, I guess it's a, it's a, it's, you could, you could argue that, well, they saw it, but they didn't live it until this moment. Uh, hence why it's kind of, they're experiencing these kinds of things for the first time, because some would argue, well, they, they've been around it. Maybe they sh- should have been prepared for this. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but I think perhaps because up until this point or until they started making their own records under their own name, um, mainly their name, um, they the pressure was kind of off them. They could, not Robertson perhaps, because he was more songwriter, how he, how he viewed his own artistry um, immediately. But um, I think perhaps, you know, the, if they're just backing up these other artists, there's more of a relaxed vibe. It could be, you know, I wasn't there personally, but I'm imagining that, it, you know, the pressure was not as intense. Um, and you're right, that's a great point to make um, because they uniquely have been on the road for so long before this and had had so much experience and playing with these huge names, like you say. Um, so they have a unique story that way. But yeah, from one perspective, you could say like, you know, it's, it shouldn't be as, as much to get used to, but I think um, the identity, not identity crisis, but the identity evaluation that goes on at that point, um, they still had to deal with that, perhaps. Interesting, for sure. I, I want to go into, we, we, we've been talking a little bit about it, but how drugs kind of play into this whole thing. And, it, you know, I always am careful about how I discuss this because I feel like sometimes it's very simplified, the drug use, and it kind of affects the kind of overall conversation about the band and simplifies it. But I remember Robbie has discussed how drugs started to influence the band around 70 um, and during the sessions for Stage Fright and how initially uh, he was stung from being left out from partaking in heroin with some of the other members of the group, given that I think, you know, a lot of their other experiences, carnal experiences, were kind of rites of passages that they experienced together. Um, And it's a brotherhood, right? And, you know, they kind of didn't involve him in that. Um, Many of the songs are about vices, anxieties, isolations. Maybe, you know, you know that the band as a whole was insecure as a group. We've talked about that. How about Rob Robertson specifically? You know, he did write a majority of the songs, especially on this album. Do you think that isolation between him and his bandmates was kind of an overall theme for this album? You could kind of pick songs and place it up against certain members and say, well, maybe this is Robertson talking to his his fellow bandmates here. Yes. I mean, that could very well be the case. Um, I think that's a very good point, too, about how Um, another layer of the isolation theme on this album um, and how, yes, I remembered that story too, particularly from Daniel Rower's fantastic film, the um, um, Once We're Brothers documentary about Robbie and then, you know, about the band in turn with that. Um, But part of that, I think it might've been Dominique, his his wife, ex-wife talking um, or him just about how at some point um, Robbie would lose interest with like the drinking and partying that was going on 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 certain nights and he would kind of leave or want to leave and and the other guys could keep it going you know um and I think he was unique within this band that way um and another as as you're saying you know another way of experiencing isolation and I agree I think that that played into the themes that come into this record um 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. And there's another section I want to talk to you about um, on the tune, just another whistle stop. Uh, there's two particular quotes that jump out to me. First, um, you say, just another whistle stop summons both exhilaration of the performing artist's one night only existence and the numbing, devaluing repetitiveness of it. And uh, another quote from a little bit later on in the piece, as frustrating as the artist's audience may become to the artist, he knows he needs it in order to stick around that opened up a whole can of worms and started getting my mind connecting a bunch of dots because I always felt that the band had at least during their first stint in the 60s and 70s um, would have rather played with each other than they did for an audience and if you go back and read earlier snippets of some of the band's first performances there was often criticism of not looking at the audience, kind of playing in a circle together. They never didn't necessarily have a great stage presence that they were just more concerned about kind of like getting up there and performing together as an act. This disdain for the audience, I think, or distrust of people show up all over the album as well, whether it's the rumor and like kind of the small townness of, of, of Woodstock. And it's, you know, again, a Robbie Pantoon, but, Rick with Small Town Talk with Bobby Charles. Similarly, like they all kind of felt like this. I know Levon was a very private person, didn't like other people that he didn't know, didn't seem to like the audience that much. What, what do you think about this whole thing? Because again, as you say, like it's a frustration. You need the audience to become successful. But there seems to be some maybe disdain is too heavy of a word, but like there seems to be maybe like an uneasiness with the audience. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think disdain is too heavy. I think it comes into play in most artists careers. Um, yeah. It's such a unique thing. It's a, the symbiotic relationship needing the audience, but also hating them. We're <laughs> um, not hating them, but, you know, resenting them in a way because you coexist with one another and keep each other afloat and, and certainly you know the audience keeping a band successful to a degree or you know commercially successful needing needing them um but that's a good point you make about how the band works um with each other they were also musical um multi-instrumentalists and just able to do incredible things musically and to do anything really from what i've seen and, and heard and, and read and stuff um, and the audience kind of puts this extra degree of judgment onto whatever musicality is happening between band members. Um, so I think that's such a great point you make about how that's a unique element of this band's particular story um, and how they too would deal with success in this unique way. Um, it's very complicated though. And it, it brings out the complicated um, relationship that we all have to ourselves. I think there's so many layers and so many memories in there. Some that we can't consciously remember, some that we can, that we play a lot over and over, maybe in our own minds. And they all form how we understand ourselves or the identity that we, that we think we have or that we think we present. Um, and then the theoretical worthiness that, you know, whether you deserve to, to achieve your dream or be successful. And of course, yes, of course you do. Everyone deserves to, to achieve their dream. But I think there are these nuances, these layers that go on behind the scenes um, that we ourselves can't even understand um, 
or you know argue with logically they're just kind of there and I think a lot of those specters those ghosts are on this record you know confronting that um so it's very complicated it's kind of like there's an element of therapy or or it could use therapy or something you know there, there's definitely a lot of analysis to to be had <laughs> yeah and it, it all makes sense right like whether very literally like looking at a history book and seeing whether it's you know playing with ronnie hawkins and like having to hold your gear with little guns after as you're on the you know chicklin circuit or you're playing with bob dylan and you're getting booed every night I, I guarantee that probably played into a little bit of the disdain but also you're dealing with musicians that many of them struggled with you know a lot of things that people didn't know how to talk about or discuss then too whether it's you know depression which is very evident in obviously richard Manuel's life and his songwriting um you know, whispering pines, sleeping, you know, uh, all of these, these tunes. And, and, um, I probably, you could assume that most of the others dealt with either some forms of anxiety or depression or anything, not to be an armchair psychologist, but you know, they're just, and, and not really encouraged to talk about it. So it seems to come out in the form of these songs, right? Cause it's a safe space, um, for them. Um, and like talking about songwriting and the dynamics and, and the moods, what are your overall observations or opinions about the, like the changing dynamics within the band? Because I think you could point to this period and stage fright being a seismic shift in a lot of things when we've primarily talked about like fame and we've talked about drugs and we've talked about that side of things, but there seems to be some changing in relationships. Um, you're talking about a group now that has success, but they're also older, slightly. They're starting to have families. They're starting to have, you know, friends and things outside of that core unit that spent the better part of a decade together at that point. Um, and the thing that I think people talked about and what they touted themselves as the best part about the group was the kind of um, democracy within the group whether it's music from Big Pink, which is which is my favorite album, the songwriting credits are very evenly dispersed. Um, and even the songwriting credits, besides that, it just seems like there was more musical chairs and there was more people kind of stirring the pod a little bit to kind of create the music that they, that they made. Um, Stage Fright seems like a departure from that. It seems like a, a place where people may have checked out or... Robbie felt uh, that it was his responsibility and, and to take the burden himself. And I think it's clear that nobody asked him to. But again, he saw himself on this fast-moving train forward and, and somebody has to kind of take charge of it, right? Um, how do you feel that kind of plays into it, that dynamic of those of those changing dynamics of, of the members themselves and their relationships? Uh Obviously, I think that affected a large part of this, right? And in, in going forward. Yeah. Um, well, I use a quote that starts my essay in, in the book um, about how this album, in a way, it's a Grail Marcus quote saying how it made the band less fun, ultimately, on this particular record. And I think the responsibilities that you're talking about had to do with that in a lot of ways. And it's so common with any band that sustains itself over more than a couple of records, how there's this front 
maybe not initially a front man, but there's someone who kind of comes to the forefront as having to drive it forward to make sure that, you know, production keeps happening, that they still keep creating work. Um, and you see it in the in the get back um, sessions of the, the Beatles, the, um, the great Peter Jackson documentary that came out last year. Um, just about you see you see Paul McCartney come forward more while he was always obviously an extremely dominant force in the group you see him kind of trying to bring it forward in the particular sessions trying to make something happen um, because I think it's hard to sustain a group to keep them even in, in a marriage or a, or a partnership or a friendship to stay on the same page because years go by and you do change and you go through things and the nucleus that perhaps established the partnership or band relationship at the beginning is not going to be the same, just like you're not, the individuals are not the same and people handle things and weather things differently. And that of course manifests in the, in the group dynamic and that would be different. Um, and in particular with the band, I think the friendship and relationship between Levon Helm and Robbie Robertson is a unique one too, how um, they changed dynamics over the course of the group evolution, um, how Levon was more dominant at the beginning and kind of brought Robbie in. Um, ultimately, Robbie became the primary songwriter of the group and was the, you could say he was the leader from some perspective, you know, creatively, just even in this album production experience. Um, so that was such a shifting too, and and kind of evidence of how they each handled success or or this experience of having gotten to that point in, in different ways. But that's kind of heartbreaking also, um, because the innocence that establishes the friendship is part of the innocence that that gets lost. That maybe you know is also told in this album story. Um, but that's another kind of casualty of the <laughs> of of existence, I guess. That sounds dour. I don't mean it so in such a dour way, but you kind of get it. Maybe. Yeah, for sure. I want to talk to you. This just sprang up to me, and and it relates to stage fright as an album and like a band who is now successful. And you see this happen with a lot of groups. Early on, you have individuals that might not be in the band, but are surrounding a group that influence the way in which they sound uh, for the better. Um, and oftentimes it's a producer, right? Or a manager. Uh, in the case of the band, it was John Simon, who I think is, you know, greatly underrated in the band's history because he kind of was the first one to bring these very green individuals into the studio environment and, and kind of help them work out their ideas, playing on the albums, helping arrange, um, and, you know, he was he was around during stage fright. There's photos you can see it, and and he's talked about he was around, but he wasn't in any official capacity as a producer on this album. And you, I, you don't, um, you don't talk about Simon clearly. Uh, you talk about a little bit about Rundgren kind of engineering, but do you think that has a component to play in this whole thing too? You know, the departure of of a figure like that in this changing dynamic. Uh, I guess you could maybe argue maybe they should have continued to work with, with, with John. Maybe he would have helped kind of deal with these egos, these growing egos and kind of um, bouts of paranoia that they were having because of, you know, the drug addiction and things like that. Maybe that would have helped. Um, what, what's your opinion on, on folks like John Simon kind of not being as involved anymore or other people that were around the band, maybe not as, not as active in their career at this point? 
Yeah, it's a fascinating idea. Um, I think it potentially has to do with um, when a group or artist has reached this level of success that the band has during stage fright by then, um, the egos transcend as such to perhaps, you know, you would figure, oh, well, I don't, you know, kind of underestimating the, the role that a producer or manager outside, um, you know, outside of the songwriting or, you know, outside of the band, um, you could under underestimate the value that they have in, in how the sound is crafted and how the identity of a group is portrayed. Um, and I think it's a common trope that comes up in a lot of different groups' stories. Um, and I think the evidence is, as you say, um, in the music, in the records, they're not always as good <laughs> as when, you know, there was more of a dominant external producer or manager who had more say. Um, because I think as brilliant as, as artists can be and as the, the band's members are, or, um, it's not, you know, you, you can always benefit from this other person, this outside um, viewing and consideration of, of how the art is going. I think even if you end up disagreeing with them, I think it's always so valuable. And yes, I believe it would have been better <laughs> or just more, you know, another layer of consideration injected into the, into the album. I think I want to bring up the question of concept albums. Uh, I love concept albums. Me too. It's because I like lyrics. I like stories. I like kind of a continuity. You know, one of my favorite albums of all time is Phases and Stages by Willie Nelson. And it's kind of one of the first country um, concept albums. And you could you could argue that, you know, the Brown album is a concept album. Uh, I've seen that opinion held. Um, but what about Stage Fright? And the reason I bring that up is because you're writing so eloquently kind of stitches together all of these songs and these thematic elements and how they approach character. Um, and you kind of weave everything so beautifully. Would you consider, like after writing this piece and, and everything, would you consider Stage Fright a concept album or is it still kind of like I, too loose for that? Or maybe what even is a concept album? I guess people have different ideas of what it is, but like I consider it after reading your essay here, I'm like, you know what? Stage Fright might be a concept album. I think... That's a great point. Um, and when you consider um, thinking about an album from, I mean, it's definitely a thematic concept album where the theme of stage fright and its offshoots are so strong and present in all of the songs, I would argue in some way um, that does link all the songs together in that particular manner. And, and so it could be a concept album. I always think traditionally, I mean, I've thought of concept, concept albums more of like this, you know, strong, stronger narrative with more plot points or characters that are recurring on the album um, as more, you know, that's how I viewed concept albums. But I think this is another beautiful way to, to consider it a concept album, as you say, um, because it's so unified and linked and it's rare. Um, I think most records aren't so unified like this one is. Interesting, yeah. Uh, for the audience out there, give it a listen. Give give this give the album a listen. Give uh, this essay a read and see if you agree with me. I'd, I'd be interested in people's thoughts. Um, I I went back and and I looked at what critics had to say about this album at the time, and I remember this one quote because I actually talked about it in my episode on stage fright, 
Uh, Billboards at Ox describe stage fright as, quote, candid and confessional, uh, generally comic and gently satiric. I always thought that the latter part of that, in my opinion, maybe was a misread. I, you know, the first part makes sense. We've talked about it, candid and confessional. Like we've, we've, we've talked about those types of words and and those themes, but comic, I, I struggle with and, and satiric, I, I struggle with too. I think it's a bit of a misread on Mr. Ox part here. And who am I to say, uh, he's obviously a, a great writer, but what do you think on that? After you've, uh, you've written and you've listened to these songs, would you, would you consider any comic and and satire in this like I, you could say as a whole the band has plenty of comedic elements to their songs um they they do and the grail marcus quote like they don't have fun necessarily on this album so that's kind of a contradiction there from somebody like marcus as opposed to their first two albums that definitely have fun elements to them what 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 do you think about that that sounds to me like the writer trying to make sense of of how different this album was in some ways from the first two records. And maybe that's where the the satirical satire word came in. Although I don't think that's totally true ultimately of the album, but I could see trying to, I can feel him or hear him trying to define that from that and with that line, trying to define the album. Um, I kind of know what he means, but I think I would have chosen a different word. (laughs) Well, well put. now, was there anything in, in the writing, going back to the writing of this and, and the preparation and everything like that, was there anything that you were kind of unprepared for or surprised when you started writing about this album? I think maybe in conjunction with what we were just talking about, while I knew the album and knew how linked all the songs were, getting in depth, going in depth, analyzing each song all together like that for the essay all in a row, I was um, like re-surprised at how um, thematically linked the songs were, how tight they were. It was very encouraging and exciting in terms of <laughs> what I found again, you know, by listening to the album again, considering it again, um, it reaffirmed my, my you know, theses that I had lined up for the essay. So it worked out, um, you know, just from a, my writerly perspective. Um, but that was kind of surprising in a way, how it really, it's a great album to analyze if you're into themes and archetypes, which I think most writers are probably. Um, but yeah, like I said, if you're an English student and, and love analyzing literature and stuff, this really feeds into that desire, this album very well. And and kind of following that thread a little bit more, um you probably clearly had favorites on the album going in to writing about it. Did, did your relationship with any of the songs kind of change after, after you wrote about them? That's a great question. Um, yes. I think as the casual listener, before I started thinking about writing about the album, I thought Daniel and the Sacred Harp was kind of like, I liked the idea of the song lyrically, but musically, Sometimes I skipped over it. Can I say that? Um, it's just a bit like, you know, musically, it, it doesn't have as much intensity immediately as some of the other songs do. Time to Kill and even Stage Fright, such a heartbreaking song. I love that song so much. Um, but the more I analyzed Daniel and the Sacred Heart liter- literal, um, lyrically, I appreciated it so much more 
how it's this beautiful mini movie and, and also heartbreaking. Um, but I think the most heartbreaking line is in the Stage Fright song, I believe the title song of, um, for the, the price the poor boy is paid, he gets to sing just like a bird. It, it scares me so much and, and, and it's beautiful and, and so terrifying about what the artistic exchange or what any of us give up arguably um, to do what we want to do. Um, frequently, you know, creatively or artistically, you could consider it like the song does, I think, but it's stating it literally like that. It's so, um, it doesn't seem like enough, you know, it doesn't seem like a fair trade or something. It, it, it brings into this selling the soul to the devil concept from, from old lore and stuff. And, and that comes into play in so many musicians' stories for fun, you know, like Robert Johnson's and stuff. Um, but it scares me every time I hear it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. And that's a theme and that kind of idea of selling your soul, I think comes up quite often. And you can go back to, I remember Robbie talking about when he was learning guitar from, you know, Roy Buchanan and Fred Carter Jr. I think it was Buchanan said, Robbie was, remembers how obsessed and kind of like, actually, I believe he kind of freaked out by how Rob or Roy Buchanan talked about kind of selling his soul to the to the to the devil um, and that kind of thing that kind of topic comes up um, more and more and on Daniel and the Sacred Harp I agree you know like when I did my episode on it I kind of dreaded trying to write about it because I was like I don't really enjoy the song but I I how I typically tend to try to get over those humps or try to get the juices flowing is I just put the song on repeat and I stopped thinking about it so hard <laughs> and I just kind of let it continue to wash over me and then things start kind of coming out. Um, and Daniel and the Sacred Harp, I remember when I finished and I put that episode out, I was like, you know what? This is actually a sleeper hit for me on this album um, because the initial kind of what I felt clunkiness of the music and like the kind of the wordiness and, and how much they were trying to, how I originally thought how much they're trying to do with it. And it's just too much. I was like, no, 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 they've got it. They've got it here. It just requires going back to your earlier point in the essay, like a sophisticated listening. It's not something that you necessarily get listening to it one time. You got to listen to it often and on repeat. And I think they at least give you one or two of those songs per album the same with life is a carnival for me on Kahoo's. I, I felt the same way um but i wanted to ask you too and i this question maybe it popped up earlier about something that you said but i was like i'll put it here in the interview so i don't break this train of thought that we're on the the themes that we're talking about in the album um you know i think some of this stuff was very prevalent in the 70s uh and for some acts maybe later in the 70s when we you touched a little bit on the kind of southern california the laurel canyon thing and um i remember when i read i think it's barney hoskins uh hotel california um he talks about kind of and he charts that entire movement from the 60s through the 70s especially the latter part and kind of the idyllicness of it was great and the softness of it but then as time went on the drugs and the excess and the kind of gaudiness of it all kind of destroyed it um so it seems to be a theme that while the band hit it in 1970 other acts might have hit on it 
later on in the decade. Is there any other albums that you think are like, if you were hosting a, you know, nerdy listening night, like folks like us do, where you're trying to put together a few albums and, you know, have a glass of wine with some friends and you're trying to kind of paint a picture, what companion albums would you kind of put with this? That is a fantastic question. And then also sounds like a great party. I usually do that by myself, <laughs> my records. Um, <laughs> but that would be cool to do with other people. Um, that is a great question. I think perhaps I would go down the, you know, down the um, path of the innocence to experience story, which again, I suppose you can relate to any story, but certain other 70s albums like Darkness on the Edge of Town by Bruce Springsteen, which is one of my favorite records. And I actually did my, I wrote my master's thesis analyzing it for in grad school, um, which was so much fun and a great time. Um, but I think the themes on that album, confronting the self and kind of reframing the way, at least on the album that Bruce's characters and his own, his own character self, nar narrator, was viewing himself and how to deal with going forward as an adult or trying to be an adult in the adult world without sacrificing the ideology and and promises that he had made to himself that we all make to ourselves as kids, perhaps when things are less compromised or have less, you know, there's more room to write the creed that we make for ourselves. Um, dealing with or, or, you know, confronting if considering if we can keep that going in the real in the real world in the adult world as we go forward um so darkness on the edge of town does that or tries to do that with its different songs i think especially the title track on that um and then thinking about other albums that also have that same theme i would have to think about this more in more detail um but you can also take it to not not with stage fright but if you start thinking about personal revelation stuff it also makes me think of certain nostalgia. <laughs> I've tried to create my own more nostalgia albums, nostalgia bums, but it doesn't sound as exciting when you say it out loud. It looks good on the written page. Um, but Donald Fagan's album, The Nightfly, which has a totally different sound than what we're talking about and is from 82, I realize, but it has a lot of self, his version of self-reflection, I think, which because of how he writes and, and and a lot of the Steely Dan catalog is, it's very removed in some ways, more narrative than, you know, personal reflection stuff, but it's still kind of, it's a version of trying to understand the self perhaps. And, and on that album, I think Donald does it more from a cultural standpoint, considering the, the culture of the early sixties and, and stuff that he's talking about. Um, I love that record though. It's one of my favorites. Awesome. And Thank you, because I put you on the spot there to come up with like a few other albums, and uh, <laughs> I feel like that would be a great um, that would be a great run of of albums, Dif different different artists, different sounds, but similar themes. Um, and then one of the last questions I had was, you know, you wrote about stage fright, and we talked a little bit about that. Um, a would I guess would you write about the band again in in a, in a format like this, and or maybe I should say it as what were the other, did you have secondary or, or tertiary uh, ideas for what you wanted to write about? Or was it always, was it always stage fright? And I'm just curious if there was any kind of other ideas that you, you had for approaching something like this. Um, I kind of, 
fell in love at first sight with this idea and it worked out in conjunction with the other writers essays so I kind of didn't think about it beyond that so much as I said before I love album analyses you know so I could pick any record even a record I don't like that much or something and just get to write in depth about all the songs on it I love doing that um so you know that was my first you know idea I would definitely write about them again I reviewed I wrote about Robert Robertson's life a bit and, and when I was reviewing his book for the Vinyl District a few years ago when it came out the storyteller um I mean testimony was the is the title and that was a wonderful book and, and really fun to write about his life there but I would definitely write again about anything in conjunction with 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 their story I think you mentioned before the small town talk recording that Rick Danko did on his solo album and I love that I love that solo album um and I feel like it's it deserves more you know consideration or attention now um, you know than it has theoretically. Also, fun fact: Jerry Beckley is on that record. Jerry Beckley from America does the back up singing on that song very noticeably. I think "Small Town Talk" you can really hear him, and he does some guitar and stuff on there too. He's on so many sessions, Jerry, um, from the '70s particularly, which is interesting if you look at the different artists he's worked with. Um, but yeah, I would like to write more about about that album, I guess. The Rick Danko album, I just finished and put out the episode on that and just digging into it well, was, yes. was was remarkable because it's a very underrated album and it's just the, you know, I think it's an interesting case, not to diverge too much, but you know, you hear a lot of people hear Sip the Wine in The Last Waltz and, and there's a curiosity there. Then, you know, I would really like to hear or see people go and like okay that little nugget and then experience that album for the first time because it is a wonderful album full of you know rick danko's expression that definitely is is a great connection for band fans because a lot of it feels similar it feels very much like home but he definitely tries his own things and yeah jerry i, I remember reading and learning about that i was like wow that's cool that that connection there as as well as a bunch of other crazy artists that are on that album as well um but uh, awesome. I, I really, that's it. I, you know, I, I want to thank you. I really enjoyed reading this piece um, for, for thank you to you for continuing to champion the band. I think it's everybody um, appreciates it because, you know, in the world of the Bob Dylans and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, uh, the band is the little guy. And any any um, added context or writing adds to that richness of the tapestry. Um, but I'll, I'll pass the floor over to you. Um, if there, you know, is anything in closing that you'd like to say or, or promote or talk about, and uh, yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I, it's been great talking to you, and you're such an eloquent interviewer. It's it's so nice. You're a great conversationalist. It's so much fun, and you're, you're so knowledgeable about the band and music. Um, I, in terms of mentioning my personal stuff now, I'm working on a new book, developing it. Um, I can't say too much about it now, but it's going to be great. <laughs> That's all I can say. That's all you need to know. It's about another 70s, another, I mean, a 70s artist who is still around today and just kind of analyzing his work. So that should be fun. Um, and yeah, if you have, if you are interested in reading the America book, um, although a bit different than 
the band. If you're, you know, if you're a band fan, I don't, I mean, you should like America, I would imagine, but it's a very different scene. So I understand um, it might be a different audience. But if you're curious, please check that book out. Um, Roman and Littlefield is the publisher and you can get it on amazon.com or wherever books are sold. That was a super fun project that was several years in the making and had the cooperation of, of the band, America the Band. So that's worth a read, I think. Awesome. And uh, I'll include some details on on where folks can find uh, Rags and Bones and exploration of the band uh, in the show notes um, as well. And a plug to your website uh, as well for all of your writing. So thank you again for coming on. Well, that was my conversation with Jude Warren. I really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I did. Uh, it was great talking about the band with somebody like Jude. Uh, very knowledgeable, fantastic writer. Probably a little bit too smart for a schmuck like me, but uh, I tried to keep up. I highly recommend you check out her writing. If you're interested in her writing on the band, you can find Rags and Bones, an exploration of the band on Amazon. Uh, I'll include a link to it in the show notes for the episode as well. But I'd also recommend checking out her other writing. Uh, some of you may know her from her book, America, the Band, an Authorized Biography. Um, and she has been published and done plenty of reviews and interviews for publications um, across North America. And you can find out more about Jude on her website, judewarren.com. And if you're interested in following us online, uh, The Band of History, you can do so on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at The Band Podcast. I know there's a bunch of new platforms out there in the wake of everything that's going on with Twitter. We're not quite there yet. We'll wait for the dust to settle a little bit before we go on some of those. But uh, we're everywhere else, so if you want to come by and say hello and discuss the band in this episode, uh, do so. Um, also, if you're interested in becoming a patron and supporting the show monetarily, uh, you could do so by going to patreon.com slash thebandahistory. I want to thank all of our patrons who support the show on a monthly basis. You are responsible for keeping the show afloat and pushing me forward, so I thank you dearly for that. Otherwise, uh, you can go check out the recent episode we did on Rick Danko's first and only technical solo album, studio album, uh, which is self-titled. It's amazing. Had a really fun time researching that one. Check it out. Uh, and be on the lookout for more episodes coming out, trying to get one out before the holiday season. So thank you again for listening to The Band of History, and we'll catch you at the next one. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 